Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Practice Group. And I'm Brad Carter from the Communications Practice Group. And today we have another episode of our Inside the TCPA series. Um, this actually is a little bit of a hybrid episode because it combines two of our favorite topics here, TCPA and FCC enforcement. That's why I have Brad with me today, right? That's right. Okay. So um, we're going to discuss uh, actions that are happening in the TCPA uh, specifically related to enforcement matters. Now, with the passage of the TRACED Act in December of 2019, the uh, federal government's TCPA enforcement received a pretty big boost. As we discussed in our podcast on the Kelly Drive Legal Download, the TRACED Act gives the FCC the authority to impose increased fines, and has a longer statute of limitations to go after those who send calls or texts in violation of the TCPA. However, this boost, while helpful to the FCC, in my opinion at least, cannot or won't solve the robocalling problem. So in past Inside the TCPA podcast, we've talked a little bit about other aspects of what we've called a multi-prong approach to reducing unlawful calls, in which enforcement is only one of those prongs. Now, these have and continue to include shake and stir, call blocking, a reassigned number database, and clarifying interpretations of the TCPA. Many of these even receive their own boosts in the TRACE Act that Steve just mentioned. We're not going to discuss those developments in this podcast. We'll leave those for later. That's right. That's right. Our discussion today really is going to focus on new approaches to enforcement involving both new targets and new enforces. I'm sorry, new targets and new enforcers. This has come in a flurry of actions announced in early 2020, all of which had provided a pretty sizable boost um, and bang for the federal government um, on their anti-robocalling and anti-spoofing efforts. So these efforts are more than just interesting headlines for unfortunate robocalling targets. Uh, If fighting unlawful robocalls is like a war, this is a new battlefront having been opened. Yeah, if, it's, if you treat it like a boxing match, we could say this is on to a new round. So whatever your preferred analogy, we think we're seeing an important shift. Right. I, I think the, the central thesis of this podcast is going to be this. Um, we believe the TCPA enforcement has shifted. To date, TCPA enforcement actions have focused primarily on the entity that is placing the call, and the FCC has imposed fines on bad actors originating thousands of harmful, generally fraudulent calls. Um, And even in TCPA class actions, the focus still is on the originator of the call. Um, Very rarely do we ever talk about the platform that's originating the call. And in many cases, there's uh, a lot of cover for that that platform when they have to have a high degree of involvement in certain instances and things like that. Yeah, but now, as we'll discuss in just a second, the government, and importantly, when we say the government, we mean more than just the FCC, is looking up the chain in enforcement matters to target service providers to address robocalling and spoofing issues before they impact consumers. 
The theories used are different and involve varying degrees of allegedly culpable conduct. But the significance is in who the government is targeting and how the government is seeking to modify behavior. If this continues, service providers will have to rethink their compliance strategies and their risks in providing service to certain customers. That's right. That's right. And Brad, in order to set the stage on this, what we're going to do is we're going to start with an FCC order in from January of 2020 that fits the old mold of enforcement. And I want to make clear that this is an action that was taken after the Trace Act was passed, but it doesn't rely upon that new authority that the FCC has in the Trace Act. Instead, it's kind of some of the, the older authorities and some of the, the um, themes that we've seen before. And specifically, we're talking here about a notice of apparent liability issued against um, several companies, the, the Rhodes NAL, um, on January 30th of 2020. It proposes a $12.9 million fine for multiple illegal spoofing campaigns. And Brad, if you can take us through some of the details on that one. Sure, so we start with our black letter law, and that is that the Truth in Caller ID Act prohibits knowingly spoofing a number with the intent to defraud, cause harm, or wrongly obtain anything of value. So here, Rhodes allegedly used a dialing platform to make over 6,000 calls with spoofed local numbers to encourage people to pick up the calls. And this is what's known, and we've discussed this on our prior podcasts, as neighbor spoofing. Now, the calls often included racist language and or threats of violence. Uh, and the FCC, the FTC, and local law enforcement received multiple complaints. And this is across a number of states. Now, the calls did not identify Rose as a source. And that, in of itself, you know, without adequate identification, is a TCPA violation. But the FCC found the calls were intended to cause harm under the Truth in Caller ID Act. And they meant harm to the campaign targets. These are the people who are the targets of these calls, uh, the call recipients, the people who actually receive the calls, and also the owners of the numbers that got spoofed. Because when people would receive these calls, obviously reasonably upset, they would then call back the number they received from. But that, of course, is not where the call actually came from. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, I mean, it's a little bit different just in that, just sort of the nature of the harm here. It wasn't monetary harm. It wasn't harm I'm trying to trick you into a vacation plan or something else like that, make you think it's coming from the, you know, the, the Social Security Administration is right outside ready to arrest you, right? This is really just kind of some pretty foul and objectionable language and conduct directed at individuals. Sure, and a robocalling campaign that in itself violated certain aspects of the TCPA. So the FCC was clear, and they've reiterated this claim that they've made in the past, that any use of spoofing in furtherance of an illegal robocalling campaign indicates itself an intent to cause harm. And as for that wrongfully obtained something of value, what they found was that by using spoofing, the roads obtain something of value because it helps to avoid law enforcement detection and also to gain publicity for Rhodes' platform. Right, right. And what we saw here um, is what the FCC did before, right? The fine is based upon the spoofing violation only. Um, it, there were TCPA violations, as you addressed in there, but the FCC doesn't uh, propose fines for that, and that's because under pre-Traced Act requirements, the FCC had to provide a citation or a warning for those actions before they can then proceed to a fine. So that's going to change a little bit or potentially change um, here uh, under the Traced Act. But because of that, you know, these types of actions, these robocalling actions at the FCC, 
um, have almost exclusively been for spoofing violations and not for sending unlawful calls in violation of the TCPA. Right. It provides a more streamlined way of getting to the enforcement fine element than you would otherwise have to do if you're just proceeding under a TCPA violation alone. Right. right. Now, Brad, let's let's address a couple different things right there. We're, there were statements, separate statements, um, involving uh, by commissioners on these particular things. So why don't we run through two noteworthy ones? So, yeah, sure. The first is from Commissioner O'Reilly, and he's he restated a point that he's made a couple of times in these spoofing-related uh, actions. And consistent with what he said in the past, he questioned the determination that I mentioned before that the use of spoofing alone demonstrates an intent to cause harm when it's done in conjunction with an illegal robocalling campaign. And what he said there is that if that's the case, then that means that every time spoofing is used, you're going to be able to reach this intent to cause harm standard. And if that's the case, then why even have it in the act, which is supposed to be addressing spoofing type violations and other issues. He also had a concern that the NAL was focused too much on the objectionable content of the calls. He was clear that that wasn't the reason why the FCC was taking enforcement action, but he did find troubling the repeated references to what was the, the, the subject matter of the calls, because in the end, that actually is not related to the FCC's authority to take action in this context. And then we also got a dissent from Commissioner Rosenworcel, and it wasn't a dissent on whether or not they should be taking this action, but the amount of the, the fine. So as Stephen mentioned, this is a $12.9 million proposed fine against an individual and some related uh, entities. Uh, but Commissioner Rosenworcel criticized the size of the proposed fine and argued it should have been higher. And one of the things to mention there is that the FCC actually did assess a lower, by comparison, base forfeiture for each of the calls. Um, but they made a very good point, the FCC, that if they had actually assessed the something closer to maybe their statutory maximum, we potentially could have had a billion-dollar fine, billions of dollars fine. Um, and you know, as with many of the FCC spoofing action there really isn't a discussion on Rhodes' ability to pay. And I think it's probably fairly clear that um, it's likely that this person's not going to be able to pay the $12.9 million right. proposed fine. And he probably couldn't have paid multiple billions either. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, in for a penny, in for a pound, or in this case, the opposite of that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so that's that's the kind of the traditional enforcement that we've seen. And that may change somewhat under the Trace Act, at least as to the content because of the lack of the citation requirement on it. Um, but now I want to start talking a little bit about some of the changes that we've seen. And um, what I want to highlight here is a series of letters that were sent by the Enforcement Bureau in early February. Now, um, these were sent in, what was it, February 4th, I believe it was, right? Yeah, it's earlier this month in February. And here's where we start to see the change in approach. So these are letters that were sent by the FCC to seven U.S.-based voice providers that accept foreign call traffic and deliver it to domestic end users. So I just want to be clear here. The, the voice providers are U.S.-based, but they're receiving the letters because of their uh, involvement in the delivery of traffic that's coming from foreign points. Right, right. They're, they're sort of serving as an international gateway um, for these calls. And um, the commission identifies them, um, and they're identified publicly. We know all seven of them uh, in this instance here. Um, and what the commission does is they write to them and they encourage them to participate in industry traceback groups. So, so part of what's alleged in the letters is that traceback has identified these calls 
back to them, but that's kind of where the the lead ends at that point. They have no no real indication on the the true um, entities before that. And as I said, they're functioning as gateways here. So what the commission asks here, which is kind of interesting, is that they ask a number of questions about the carrier's business practices um, and network practices in identifying and combating illegal robocalls. They ask them, how are you looking at these things? Do you detect these, uh, these potential calls, things like that? Not things that are necessarily enforcement related, even though it comes from the Enforcement Bureau. They're asking, they're not necessarily alleging that these are violations of the rules. Um, they note that there's a potential for enforcement action um, if you don't address unlawful robocalls, but the letters don't really go into what the basis of that would be. Um, and I think it's a little bit unclear. Right. This is not, I want to be clear, not in the context of what would normally be a letter of inquiry or an other sort of in enforcement investigating initiating document. This is instead more of a, an information request. Um, and the responses are actually due a couple days from when we're recording on February 17th. And it's likely, again, different from most enforcement investigations, that the FCC is going to make at least part of the information they receive public. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would expect they would in this instance because, as you note, they don't specifically say this is an enforcement inquiry, right? The Enforcement Bureau is doing it, so that's kind of the implied hammer, you know, coming out there. But um, in many ways, you know, we've seen this before in other contexts. We've uh, had podcasts on it. We've put, we blogged about a number of situations like this. This is the commission trying to use sort of its bully pulpit, I think, to name and shame actors where those actions might actually be lawful, but they're not exactly what the FCC wants. Sure, and we've seen examples like that in the past, mostly in the context of letters that, say, a FCC commissioner, uh, him or herself, will send out to uh, industry participants. I think we've seen this with Commissioner O'Reilly in 911 fee diversion. Uh, we've seen it in a broader context with the, the sale of location, customer location data as well. Um, and I think it's fair to say, Steve, you would start off by saying, uh, these entities were encouraged to participate in the industry traceback group. I think it's fair to say it was a, it was a strong encouragement. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And, and again, you know, to get to our theme here and how this kind of fits in here, right, what we're seeing now is the targets of this are not the actual call originators, but they're the network through which those calls got into the United States and got into the U.S. system. So it's moving up that chain, and that's the really significant thing that we want to talk about and look into, right? You know, here they are focusing on a new set of entities who might have responsibilities or might have some liability in certain circumstances. That's right. So now we want to also look at this shift in approach, not only from the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, but we're seeing it in other actions as well. And so here I want to talk quickly about the Federal Trade Commission. Um, where we have seen an action there where the FTC sent letters to VoIP providers um, telling them that they have uh, potential liability under the TSR. And it, it's kind of interesting here in a couple of things. First, you know, they sent this out to 19 VoIP providers, although they don't identify who those 19 are. They just said there were 19 of them. And it's, it's difficult for VoIP entities because just as a little bit as an aside, right, 
they're increasingly in this no man's land um, as a result of the FCC's refusal to classify the service. So they're facing fire from both directions, which we'll talk about in a minute here. Um, but um, what it does, so the FTC tells them that they might take legal action against those VoIP providers if they work with entities who they know or consciously avoid knowing are violating the agency's telemarketing rules. And now this stems in part from a difference in the way the TSR is compared to the TCPA. The TSR essentially does have an aiding and abetting um, provision in its rules that a person who provides substantial assistance to telemarketers who are providing uh, deceptive or unfair um, messages, those persons who provide that assistance can also have liability. And that's a little bit of, of uh, difference in the way the FTC works and the FCC works. Right. So, I mean, before we jump off of these letters, though, it's important to note this potential jurisdictional issue that you had briefly highlighted just to drill down on it. And one of the key things here is that the FTC does not possess authority over common carriers for common carrier activities. The FCC regulates that. But as Steve mentioned, the FCC has not classified VoIP providers as common carriers or information services or anything, actually, at this point. But it often imposes common carrier-like requirements on them, such as like the 911 outage obligations. So this has been a continuing battle. And as Steve has mentioned, it, it puts the, the VoIP providers in a tough position where they're neither explicitly regulated under either regime, but they're getting flavors of regulation from both sides at the same time. Yeah, in many ways, they're getting the worst of both worlds. Right. I mean, you would think that, you know, well, maybe it's good, it gives flexibility, but this is flexibility being taken in the other direction by the regulatory authorities. Um, so let's move from the FTC over to the Department of Justice. And I'll mention this briefly just because this is really something that's just getting the ball rolling on this. So there's been a uh, spate of robocalling complaints and temporary restraining orders that were fired by the Justice Department at the end of January. And this is another example of looking up the chain. There are two cases targeting, again, VoIP providers and three individuals associated with the VoIP providers. And what the DOJ alleges is that they knowingly carried millions of fraudulent foreign robocalls, mostly from India, after receiving multiple warnings. Now, the robocalls involved impersonating government agencies, and this is the, 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 the characteristic uh, robocalling scam fraud. And you should listen to Steve's podcast on the legal download because he has an excellent recording of the IRS uh, version of this. But this comes in many flavors. It's someone saying that the IRS is taking legal action against you, that your bank is closing on one of your accounts, that it's a law enforcement organization that's putting out a warrant for your arrest. And this is part of it. And it's all there to inspire the target of the call to demand to either pay money or take some other action. So the DOJ alleges that these all these actions constituted wire fraud under their own criminal statute. And they worked with the FCC and the FTC to trace the robocalls basically up the chain. So this is the first of its kind DOJ enforcement in going after service providers instead of just the individuals initiating the robocalling campaigns. The Justice Department alleges that the service providers knew that the calls were fraudulent and thus the defendants were themselves participants in a wire fraud scheme. That's, there's, a, there's a big intent element here that, that isn't, you don't see in the regulatory agencies. For now, only injunctive relief is sought, meaning they just want to stop the calls. But the scope of relief sought would prevent them from providing any service to call centers and, as a side note, suspend their use of toll-free number resources issued 
under the toll-free service database. Basically, it's cutting them off from being able to use that type of service for what they're doing. Yeah, it's a pretty significant action and significant that they, too, are focusing on those that are one step removed from the actual placement of the call. So um, that's three examples, one from the DOJ, one from the FCC, one from the FTC, um, in showing this looking up the chain kind of, of activity. Um, now, in many ways, you know, just to kind of wrap this up, right, this is sort of a familiar playbook. We've seen this in other contexts and other eras. Um, for example, after many years of enforcement actions taken against individual crammers or individual slammers, that kind of proved ineffectual. And so the FCC started to target the carriers that worked with them um, and cut off their assistance through like third-party billing. So the focus started to be on the carriers, you need to better manage your sales agents and your sales channels. You can't say, hey, that distributor was a bad apple. That's not good enough. You've got to do something here. Um, and there are indicators that that's going to continue in the robocall context. Uh, the Trace Act, I want to highlight, has two rulings, uh, rulemakings rather, two rulemakings that may impose indirect liability on voice providers. One requires the FCC to examine whether or not um, access to numbers should be denied from those entities who are found to have violated the act. And as part of those rules, whether the voice service provider should know the identity of their customers. The second one uh, requires an annual enforcement report to the Congress, and it asks the FCC to analyze whether a certain practice contributes to the overall um, uh, robocall problem. And that practice is whether VoIP providers who discount high volume, unlawful, short duration calls have an impact on that. So clearly it's like, you better look closely at what you're carrying and who you're carrying it for um, to decide whether or not you want to stay in that business. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, really, it's a regulation requiring a reporting that maybe identifies future issues to require further regulatory action. So right. it's a regulation that may spawn further regulation down the road. But it remains to be seen whether service providers are going to push back on this expanded robocalling enforcement efforts and the potential widening of the scope of liability. But in the meantime, those that are providing service to potential TCPA violators should closely examine their practices carefully in order to assess the risk that such services could create liability or, at a minimum, cause unwanted scrutiny of the entity by any of these federal uh, agencies that we've talked about or others. That's right. And on that very happy note, I think we're going to wrap up here and say thank you all very much for listening to this. Um, we see this as, as a trend. We think it bears watching. Um, we appreciate you taking the time on this, and we hope you'll continue to follow us on uh, Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.